welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. pray over the preaching of the word, O God. We thank you for its mighty power. But it is uh, the Holy Spirit whom we want to invite to come over the preaching. May the word be faithfully and clearly opened according to what little skill you give a preacher. And may the Holy Spirit move through his truth, his inspired words, and bring his perfect message to our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. And now to the reading of the word, Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. The word of God says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. This is God's eternal word. May he inscribe its eternal truth on our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Praise the Lord. Well, we are continuing in the series that uh, you've been through in my absence as well, out of Hebrews chapter 11, verses 17 to 19 is my assigned text today, and a great one it is about uh, the, the great testing of Abraham and his marvelous response of faith. I want to thank the pastors who uh, were preaching in my absence for taking us in an excellent way through uh, the stories of other of the ancient fathers of the past, Enoch and Noah, and a bit into the story of Abraham last week in a sweeping message, and, and also one of the women of faith that are mentioned in this great chapter, Sarah herself. I want to remind you, as, as I return to the text, about the chapter's purpose. Hebrews 11 is placed very uh, specifically in a monumental book, it is a book calling people who were doubting in faith to have ultimate faith in Jesus alone as Savior, Messiah. Better than anything they had ever sought in the past to achieve a relationship with God through their own works and better than anyone they ever imagined they could know for their future, worthy of suffering for him. Now, the, the book itself is a description of the greatness of Christ and it's an encouragement to believe. It was written to a group of Jewish believers who were also surrounded by some Jewish inquirers. So you have a young church of former Jews struggling to believe and to suffer for their faith. And then you've got a, a gathering of people who mingled with them who were still Jewish in their practice, but who were interested in the news of Jesus, Yeshua as Messiah. Persecution was falling on these groups. 
The Jewish people who had come to believe in Jesus were being persecuted by the Jewish culture for leaving the Old Testament law and and for abandoning their faith. The Jews that were uh, thinking about trusting Christ were afraid of the Roman culture that was making Christianity in any form something very dangerous to practice. Persecution was rising under the rule of Nero and others around him. So it's a message about believing God. It's a message about standing in faith for him. And the the whole process of this passage comes out of a climax that the writer reaches in chapter 10 about describing the greatness of Christ. And then he calls all of his readers in verse 39 of chapter 10 to be people of faith. He says, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, who decide not to believe and are eternally lost. But we are of those who have faith, there's his theme, and preserve their souls, not just for eternity, but who have the faith to go through suffering. Then right away, next verse, no, no chapter breaks in the original, you remember, he goes into the argument about faith. If you, we want you to have faith, verse 39 of chapter 10, chapter 11, verse 1, now faith is. And you remember that he describes faith, defines it, if you will, as the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And then for the 39 verses that remain, he describes faith. He shows how it lived out its reality in living color in the different lives of men and women that these Hebrew Christians or Hebrew seekers all knew from their Old Testament. Now, the theme of how each of these people in the Hall of Faith, as we call it in Hebrews 11, responded, there's an underlying theme. They believed God. But it was a belief that was made in spite of circumstances. You'll take a look at every life, the lives that have been preached to you in the last few weeks and the lives that will be preached in the weeks to come. All of them believed God in the face of circumstances that screamed at them to do otherwise, not to believe in the God of the scriptures. Well, today we come to what many Bible commentators have described as the Mount Everest of faith moments. The greatest faith stand by any man or woman in Scripture, the faith stand of Abraham and the sacrifice of his son. It's been called the Mount Everest of faith moments. It's hard to imagine anyone in Scripture who's been called to something quite like this, as you'll hear. He believed God in the ultimate way with the ultimate challenge. None of us would have ever wanted to be written into this chapter of the Bible. Think about it. You might be want to be written into the, some of the great chapters of revival and great response to Christ, but you wouldn't want to be written into Genesis 22 where all, this all took place. No, we, we, we can only look up at Abraham and his story from where we are in our faith life. Yeah, we've had our victories, but none like this one. Yet we all do face mountains of faith and decision on our own, don't we? I was walking after the first service and somebody mentioned they appreciated the message. And I said, yeah, old Abraham Abraham had a Mount Everest, didn't he? And she said, well, I've got a few of my own this week. (laughs) I thought, well, and she said, I'm glad it was preached. Well, praise the Lord. We all face summits, challenges of our own when obeying God 
may mean losing something precious like Abraham faced. Or when believing God means that we will have to see something impossible happen for God's will to continue to go forward. We've got summits like that. So the message is for us. The story, of course, is enshrined in Scripture for us. I'm going to look at two things today. The realities of the faith challenge in Abraham's life and then some real-life connections to our faith challenges. Some word for our summits from his mountaintop. First of all, the realities of his faith challenges. Now, to do that, I need to give you a little context to his story, which you've received from Pastor Sam, but I, just to, I'll finish a frame, a fast frame, that speaks specifically to this incident. We know that Abraham was a pagan when the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, met him in a foreign land, Ur of the Chaldees. And uh, he was a pagan man who had never learned of the one true God. He was actually uh, in the town, the city. It was a great city that he lived in, by the way. That city was focused around a, a three-storied temple of worship called a ziggurat, and that was dedicated to the moon God. You step to the top to worship the moon God. So Abraham was all into that. And yet the God of the scripture calls him and speaks to him. And to Abraham's credit, he responds by faith and believes in this true God. This true God called him to three things over the 75 years of his life that we are able to study in detail. He said, Abraham, I want you to go out from this place where you've lived all your life, and I'm going to take you to a land that is unknown to you, that's not your own. I'm going to lead you there, and you're going to sojourn there, because that's where my will and people are going to come forth. So I'm going to send you to a land, the land of Canaan, modern-day Israel, and a bit more, as we understand it. As he went, later on, God gave him a second promise. I'm going to make from your physical line a great people, the people that we know as Israel today. And that was made to Abraham and Sarah, even though they'd never had children and were not seeming to be able to have children. He made that promise to Abraham when he was 75 years old. The third promise that God articulated sometime later was that through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed because through Abraham's line would come a Messiah, a Savior, only through Abraham's line who would, who would pay for the sins of his lost people. So huge promises, huge privilege for Abraham, huge issues that had to be worked out by God. And so they lived with this promise laid over their lives. Now, God finished making those promises to Abraham when Abraham was 75 years old. And Abraham was anxious to see the birth of a son, and he and Sarah waited, and nothing happened. And for 25 long years, they remained childless. They went through many ups and downs of faith in that time, not all of them good. But they persevered even out of their errors and mistakes, and they were still believing God. Until 25 years later, when Abraham was cresting 100, and Sarah was 90 years old, all of a sudden, the miracle happened, and Sarah had a child. Ken Hughes, in his commentary on this, describes what their life must have been, must have been like. It's beautiful language. I'll read it to you. There's a divine poetry that settles over their lives once Isaac has been born. 
When Isaac was born, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Genesis 21, 6. And in fact, God told them to name their son Isaac Laughter. Laughter because the joy of the will of God fulfilled had come into their lives. Dr. Hughes writes, Sarah was 91 years old and she had given birth to her first child. I'll let you think about the physical realities of that for a minute. But through that all, (laughs) he writes, she laughed. Abraham laughed and laughter filled all their tents and heaven smiled. Isaac's name, laughter, was a sure prophecy of what he brought to their lives. The old couple would take baby Isaac in their age-spotted hands. Can you imagine that? And hold him close before their wrinkled faces. And their eyes would light up as the smile lines drew taut. And they would chuckle over little baby Isaac. And he would laugh up into their faces. If ever there were doting parents, Abraham and Sarah were surely prime examples. The boy was everything to them. The gathering of their bodies and souls, the miraculous fulfillment of prophecy and the hope of the world. Isaac's every move was lovingly chronicled. His first word, his first step, his likes and dislikes, his tendencies And as he grew to boyhood and on into his teen years, into manhood, Abraham and Sarah would see aspects of their younger selves in their son. They'd see perhaps Abraham's height and broad shoulders and Sarah's impish impish eyes and perfect nose. There can be no doubt that either one of them would have died in an instant for Isaac. They were so utterly proud of their son. And laughter filled their lives. And then, then God spoke again. And to give you the experience of it, I want to read from Genesis 22, the first 14 verses that describes the darkness that came over the tents of laughter, but that ended in victory. Genesis 22, 1. After these things, after all these things, these highs and lows, these mountains of promise and these great miracles and these times of laughter, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love And go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac, probably in his late teens or middle teens. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place of which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, Stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. The Hebrew says, We, plural, will come back to you. How important that is in the story. 
We will come back again to you, verse 5. Verse 6, And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering, a torch in his hand from the fire. Uh, Pardon me, took, took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son, laying it on his back so that Isaac would carry up to the top of the mountain the wood of his own sacrifice. And then Abraham took in his hand the wood from the fire, a burning torch and the knife. And so they went, both of them, together. And Isaac said to his father, Abraham, Abi, Daddy, my father. And he said, Here I am, my son. Isaac said, Behold, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for a burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. And so they went, both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you've not withheld your only son, your son, your only son from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by its horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. The Lord will provide, as it is said to this day, On the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. What a series of moments. What a story filled with humility and power. Abraham was tested and he believed God. Let's look into the depths of how he was challenged. There's three things. First of all, And the realities of his faith challenges was this. Abraham was tested by God. It's a simple observation. Abraham was tested, it says in Hebrews 11, 17, when he was tested. And I would remind you, so will we be. That's the first reality. Testing comes to the life of the follower of the God of the Bible. It is part of our birthright. It is part of our heritage. It is part of our future because only through testing does the faith of the believer grow. If you belong to God, you will be tested by God to press you into greater levels of faith and to prove to heaven itself how much faith you've already built. If you belong to God, you will be. And by the way, his churches will be if they are true churches of the word of God and of faith in the preached Christ, they will be tested in a world that despises him. And God is sovereign over every episode and every season of testing among all his people. So if you belong to him, believer, and you're going through testing, rejoice. It's a birthmark of being born again. 
But remember two things as you were tested. Number one, there is purpose in it. The scripture reminds us of this in many places. Perhaps the best is 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter writes to the believers undergoing great persecution. In this you rejoice. Why? It's a sign of your sonship. Your daughtership with God. Though now for a little while, if necessary, I believe the Greek says, since it's necessary, God never tests you without a divinely perfect and loving reason. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, the word tested, same Greek word as in Hebrews eleven seventeen, 17, and uh, it, it, it came from working in leather. And it meant to try to pierce a piece of thick leather with a sharp tool. And so when they had fit, when they had tanned the leather and seasoned it, the leather worker would take a sharp tool and he would try to press a hole in that leather. He was testing it to see if it could take sharp, constant pressure. And it proved its worth and it proved its strength. When you passed the perosmos, that pressing of trial did not puncture through your faith. You sustained your faith under the piercing of the trial. And he says, your, your tested faith will prove the genuineness of your faith so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When you stand before Christ in heaven at the great reward ceremony of heaven, you will be praised and honored for how you responded in faith to the pressing in your life guided by God. Don't you want to be rewarded and honored by him but also when you pass the tests of faith in this life before you get to heaven you will know that you persevered for him and you honored your lord and you took the testing that has great value so there's purpose in it but there is also protection in it first corinthians 10 13 says that god will not tempt you beyond what you are able but with the temptation will provide a way of escape also that you may be able to endure it no matter what he leads you into to endure in your life whether it's a moment in time or whether it's a whole season in your life that may never change until you see jesus he has given it to you and he's built limits into it and his spirit will be sufficient for you. He protects you from being tempted into what is beyond your ability to obey. You say, I think I'm on the living edge of that. Well, praise the Lord. He's honored you with a great test. Honor him with one more day of believing. You say, that's all inspiring language, Pastor. And I'm, I'm used to listening to you talk that way and read these great stories from the Bible, but to me, they're still stories because I've rarely experienced victory over trials in my life. When bad things happen in my life that really intimidate me, my first thought is not to believe God. I try for a little while, but pretty soon I fall into a funk. And then as the trial stays and I become afraid of what could happen if God doesn't help me, then I go from funk to freak. And I start really panicking and my life comes unraveled. And then time after time, I fall back into handling it the way I did before I met Jesus. I'm not a spiritual giant like Abraham. Not me. Well, I got good news for you. And that is that Abraham wasn't always a spiritual giant either. 
How do you think he got to where he could be tested like this with the greatest test of all time by passing and failing the tests of the other times? Abraham failed some of the earlier tests in his life. And God was patient and faithful, kept walking with Abraham, and Abraham learned from the failure and walked in greater strength with God over the years. But Abraham had some Class A failures. You know his story. It's been covered for you. Did you know when Abraham was first called and when his name was Abram to leave the country of his birth or the Chaldees, that he didn't fully obey? He didn't go the direct route to Canaan, the land that God wanted him to go. He actually took a little bit of a human detour and he went a little bit, he he decided to take the long route to obey. Anybody ever done that? It's a terrible journey. No, no. But no, he went and he went to a place called Haran, which was pretty much out of the way. And God said, I want you to leave all your family and everything behind and you just come. Well, old Abraham, uh, Abraham couldn't do that either. He took his father along. And in fact, he stayed in the land of Haran, partially disobeying God for years until his father finally died. And Abraham learned that he better get with God. And so he finished the journey. So his obedience wasn't stellar. God had to call him again out of Haran and he finished his journey, finally obeying. And then when he got to, the, got to the land of Canaan, instead of trusting God who kept to keep him, even though God would speak to him verbally, when a famine came to Canaan, Abraham didn't obey God and he didn't go look to God and ask God to help his family survive. He took matters into his own hands and went down to Egypt to, to pawn off the Egyptians and trust the arm of the flesh to survive the famine. When he got down there, he realized that his wife was very beautiful and the Egyptians might take her for their own. And so he, he, he didn't want to be killed so that they could take Sarah as their, as their prize. So to save his own skin, he lied about Sarah and passed her off as his sister. And if you remember your Bible story, he didn't do it once, he did it twice. Not a champion of faith. On and on his story goes. Finally, when God's promise didn't come through for having a son, uh, in the time that Abraham and Sarah thought they were, they came up with their own idea. They had Abraham sleep with a servant in the house named Hagar. She had a son named Ishmael. That has caused evolutions of trouble to this day. Abraham, not a man of powerful faith. But through all of these things, God kept with him. And Abraham, thinking back on these moments, must have built the belief that when God speaks, I need to say, here I am, Lord. So he got there through the failures you're going through. You want to get there? Keep going through the challenges you're going through. That's all I can tell you. Second thing I see in this story of faith is that Abraham responded with both decision and submission. And so should we. Take a look at 1117, please. It says, when he was tested, he offered up his son. It's interesting, the word tested there in the Greek language of Hebrews 1117, when he was tested, it's in the perfect tense in the Greek, which means something that was ongoing, something which was happening over time. How long did this test last? It lasted three long days in Abraham's life. God came to him in the night. Abraham saddled the donkey. The next day, it was a three-day journey to the mountain. 
So all during that time, Abraham was under the testing and the fear and the what ifs and all of that spiritual battle going on in his mind. But it's interesting. The Bible says when he was tested, he offered up Isaac. And that's in the Greek perfect tense, which means something that has been decided and has, is already completed. And what that means to me as a Bible interpreter is this. God called Abraham to sacrifice his son. It took three long days to get to the mountain and set up the altar. But Abraham had already decided in his mind. God has said it. I've learned over the years when God says it, I must do it. And so my son is as good as dead. I'm not going to waver this time. If God says to do it, I am his servant and I will do it. So it's a done deal in my mind. So every moment they were traveling up to the mountain, Abraham has already decided, I must kill my son God has said it. It's a done deal. It's said and done. My son is as good as dead. That's huge. Abraham made a decision and he submitted the decision. Let's talk about that. Can you imagine if Abraham hadn't been seasoned by trials to this point and Abraham had said no in that great moment? The entire outworking of salvation and the history of God's work in the world. Well, God would have worked it out sovereignly, but Abraham would have missed his place in the story. I don't know what would have happened. But Abraham said, here am I. And he kept at it all the way through. You see, I think Abraham must have learned that the battle is in the beginning when it comes to testing. Let me repeat that. The battle is in the beginning when it comes to testing. So many of us don't train our will like Abraham had trained his. When God speaks and tells me to do something, I say, here am I, Lord. No more equivocating, no what-ifing with God, no trying to ignore what he's told me in the word of God this morning, no trying to come up with my alternatives, no delaying, no evading, no whimpering, no whining, no, no negotiating. No, I'm learning to say more and more in my life when God says, do this, my battle is won in the beginning. You're, you'll be amazed at the momentum in your spiritual life that comes when you simply decide, I'm a servant of the most high God and I'll win the battle in the the beginning when he says yes i'll start moving toward obedience do you hear me that is powerful in the devoted life secondly submission the text makes clear what a big sacrifice this was hebrews eleven seventeen. god is calls abraham and he says i want you to give up your only son only was monogonese it meant your only begotten son. It didn't mean his only physical son because Abraham, a physical son through, uh, through Hagar named Ishmael, and he also would have other sons later uh, in, in his life. And so it wasn't his only physical son, but it was monogenes, uh, only begotten means unique, one of a kind, unlike any other. And so the, the text reminds us that God was telling Abraham to give up the one and only son of promise, the son of promise for the world. He was asking him to give a Isaac up in such a way that he couldn't even imagine. He emphasizes in verse 19, this is the one whom, whom God himself had said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. You can imagine what went through Abraham's mind. But God, didn't you just tell me a few years ago that through Isaac, the Messiah was come, would come, that through Isaac, the whole nation that you said would come from me is going to arise, and only through Isaac? You didn't say Ishmael, you said only Isaac. Okay, Lord. 
I don't understand it, Lord. But I know you. No more precious sun for me, Lord. But not a blink. You see, I think Abraham must have learned another secret, and that is the secret is in the surrender. When God brings great testing into your life, when the piercing tool presses in to the leather of your belief, and he brings you into something you never even quite imagined. If in your walk with him, you already made the decision and have lived into the decision that your life is his life, your hopes are his hopes, and he is master. As Jesus said, no one who comes to me and wants to be my disciple can come unless he hates his own life. He lays down his life and picks up his cross and follows me. The secret is in the surrender. So when the great piercing trial comes, you've already decided who you are. You hold nothing. Abraham responded with both decision and submission, and so should we. And finally, Abraham trusted God, Hebrews tells us, with the consequences of his calling. So must we. He trusted God with the consequences of his calling. Now, who's calling? Not Abraham's calling. He trusted God with the consequences of what God wanted to do. God had a new calling. God had a new decision. And Abraham said, God, if you want this done, you're responsible for how all this works out. I give it all to you. My responsibility is to obey. Your responsibility is to work out your will and all this. And I don't have a clue about how you're going to do it. But I will obey you. You see the text. It says in verse 19, he considered, Abraham considered, that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Now look at this. Abraham did two things. He considered who God was, first of all. Considered there in verse 19 is the Greek word logizomai. Interesting word. It's a word that... Uh, that we hear a lot around Facebook these days because it's the word from which we get logarithm. It's a method to calculate numbers and predict results. In the Greek world, it meant to compute or to calculate. It was a bookkeeper's and accountant's term for adding things up. But Abbott and Smith in their lexicon tell us that when it came to just human decisions outside the world of numbers, it meant to deliberate, to weigh what you know, and to come to a reasoned conclusion. And that's what the Bible says Abraham did when God brought him this overwhelming trial and challenge that he couldn't understand from his human orbit. He simply took what he knew about God and he added it up. He reasoned. He added up the facts that he knew about God and it gave him the confidence to trust God with something that didn't compute. Here's how his math might have run. My problem given to me by God, this unbelievable task that he wants me to do, this obedience that he's called me into, which is beyond my human understanding, my problem added to what I know about his person multiplied by what I know about his promises equals a peaceful perspective for me. Let me repeat the math for those of you who are like me and copied in math class. My problem added to his person 
multiplied by his promises equals a peaceful perspective for me in whatever he calls me to do. Boy, we need that math today. He reasoned and considered that what God had said, God was good for. Oh, we need it today. We need it in confusing hours and perplexing times, don't we? We also need it in sudden moments in our life when we're convicted by God to do something that when we look at it, there's no way it could turn out at all for good. One man has written that obedience feels like the end of a dream sometimes. You feel that if you do what the Word of God is calling you to do, it, it'll make you miserable and that there's no way that God could turn it all out for good. Maybe the clear call of God for you is, for His will right now, is for you to stay single. And you battle with the impossibility in your soulish life to do that. Or maybe the call of God for you is to stay married and continue the spiritual battle and the loneliness that you live in. Or it's to stay in one job that, boy, you wish you could get a reprieve from. Or to have to leave a job that you didn't expect, but God is making it clear. Maybe it's a call to get baptized after years of really not and going through the fear factor of what will people think. Maybe you've been spoken to from the Word of God to speak up at work about Christ and hold to your spiritual integrity and in this age know that real penalties might come your way. Or maybe the good Word of God is calling you to confront a person who's in sin and you already know the outcomes are just going to be tough. Whatever it might be, the prospect of doing it is terrible to you. And it's sort of like the loss of an Isaac, the, the, the future that you had looked for with what God is saying is going to be threatened. Well, that's, that's part of why this chapter is here. <laughs> that's why Abraham walked with through what he did. Scripture says and that all of these things in the Old Testament have been written for our instruction, doesn't it? So what do we learn? Abraham trusted God with the consequences of God's calling, and so must we. He considered who God was. He did the math. And he lived in that, and God gave him a measure of peace. And secondly, because of that, he experienced what God did. Look at the last part of the verse in verse 19. Abraham persevered. Abraham did the unthinkable. And he considered that God was able even to raise Isaac from the dead. Somehow God would work this out and he would be present in all of this. And from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Because when he got to the top of the mountain and the wood was laid and the knife was raised, God spoke. But wasn't Isaac as good as dead until that minute? Yes, he was. Abraham had decided this time, no debate with God. I'm going to bring down the knife. My son's as good as dead. And as the knife was swinging down, God spoke into the picture. And Abraham did, figuratively speaking, receive his son back from the dead because that boy was as good as dead on the altar, wasn't he? And the will of God moved. And God had a plan all along. And God had a purpose all along. 
And Abraham trusted him all the way through the plan. And the sweetness of it, my beloved, is that you, when you trust him through the plan, God will often let you taste the sweetness of the purpose and the outcome. And Abraham walked down the hill with his son and went back to those two servants. And just as he believed by faith, they both came back and they both went home. And I'll tell you right now, both Abraham and Isaac had a faith story for the ages in their hearts. And they knew and believed God from that like they had never believed him before. If you consider who God is, you'll get to experience what God does. I mean, how many times have you taken a bold step of faith at great potential cost to you, and then on the other side, seeing what God had planned. Isn't it awesome? It truly is. Well, those are the real-life realities, and let's go now, as I conclude, to two real-life connections for you, although we've been making connections all the way through, haven't we? Two, one is that I learned that God will sometimes confuse us when he tests us. Amen to that. And we just have to keep believing anyway. That's one of the great stories of Abraham's encounter here. We just have to keep believing all the way through the confusion, doing the math, trusting the Lord. As Dr. Dwight Pentecost said in his commentary on this passage, there are times when we have to believe in the darkness what we knew from God in the light. Testing. Second, God always has a good plan and never more than the day when he offered up his own son. In conclusion, take a look at the last phrase of verse 19. And he received, figuratively speaking, Isaac back from the dead. Not only did Isaac get to the brink and was he as good as dead until God intervened. Many Bible teachers have looked at this passage and at Genesis 22 that I read to you and have seen some figures speaking in that story about a sacrifice that was yet to come on another mountain called Calvary. Foreshadowings, if you will, of a time when another father would lead another son up another mountain. Only this time, the knife would fall and the world would change. I went back over Genesis 22 and I made some notes in my Bible. Let me just highlight those as I bring your focused mind to the unity of the Word of God and that this whole experience on Mount Moriah that day in Genesis 22 has inklings of what was to come for you. In Genesis 22, verse 2, God said to Abraham, take your only son, Isaac, the only unique son, the one and only son. And there was one and one only son in the great Holy Trinity who was sent by the Father to go to the Mount of Calvary. Isaac, to me, prefigures our one and only Lord Jesus Christ, the precious one. Verse 6. Abraham laid the wood of the burnt offering on the back of Isaac, his son. In much the same way, perhaps, that God the Father allowed the Roman torturers to lay the rough crossbeam of that cross on the bloody back of the one and only son 
and force him to walk through the winding streets and up the jagged hillside of Calvary. Verse 8, Abraham comforted his son and said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. God did provide a lamb offered for the whole world, for you, for me. Oh, how can you not see it there? And so they went both of them together. God the Father and God the Son walked through the Calvary Road and to the ultimate cross and beyond. They went through it together for their flock. All along the way, Christ, as Isaac did, speaking with his father, Abi, Daddy, I'll go. If you call me, I'll go. Verse 9, Abraham bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Didn't God the Father allow the Roman executioners to throw down Christ on top of the wood, bind him with nails, and raise him to the sky? For me. And Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But in the case of the one and only Lord Jesus on Calvary, God the Father brought the knife down. He let the knife fall. He let the sacrifice be complete. He let the death be died. And he let the fire of his wrath come down upon the Lord Jesus to satisfy his wrath that should have fallen on you. Oh, indeed, on the mount of the Lord, a lamb should be provided. And he was. You know, God took the worst day in Abraham's life and made it his greatest day. And God took the worst day in history, crucifixion day, and made it the greatest day in history. Will you, when the word of salvation comes over your life, say, here am I, Lord. You did it for me. Let me trust you as Savior. And if you're a believer, will you now say, every time God leads you in the way of the cross, taking up your cross, facing your cross, and going through trial, will you learn to say, because he said, Abi, here I am, Father. Won't you say, here I am, Father. I'll trust you and obey you from the beginning. 